0: Our lesson of the day is Psalm 98. Listen carefully to God's word. This is a psalm. Sing to Yahweh a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have accomplished salvation for him. Yahweh has made known his salvation, he has revealed his righteousness in the eyes of the Gentiles, he has remembered his covenant love and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to Yahweh all the earth. Break forth in joyful singing and sing psalms. Sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of the ram's horn. Shout for joy in the presence of the King Yahweh. Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing joyfully together in the presence of Yahweh, for He is the one coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your promises through the prophets to send Your Son. We thank You that in Christ Jesus, every promise is yes and amen, and we thank You that we have hope in Him of the promises yet to be fulfilled. We look forward to the salvation that is near, nearer to us now than when we first believed, and we pray that You would fill us with hope as we remember Your faithfulness and look forward to the glorious coming of Christ at the last day. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. (coughs) If you had to guess... The most popular Christmas Christmas carol in recent history, what would you say? Come on. Joy to the World. You guys are so smart. Joy to the World is exactly right. It is the most popular Christmas carol of the modern era by a long shot. It has been published, Joy to the World has been published in over 1,400 hymnals, in the last 200 plus years. And it beats out the second most popular Christmas carol by a mile. The second most popular, by the way, is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Maybe that was uh, the Peanuts Christmas movie that made that one popular, I don't know. I think, though, it's interesting to consider that Isaac Watts, the author of Joy to the World, would be pretty surprised to learn that his hymn had become the most popular Christmas carol of the modern era because, not because it's a bad song, but because he never thought of it as a Christmas carol. He never intended it to be a Christmas carol. Isaac Watts was an English poet and clergyman. And in 1719, he published what he called The Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament. He had complained as a, as a teenager in, uh, in church, he had complained to his father, who was a priest as well, that the psalm singing was lackluster. He had complained that the psalm singing was just really flat. And his father said, All right, well, then do something about it. Write your own Psalms for us to sing. If you, you know, if you think it's so bad, then fix it. And he took him up on the, on the challenge. And in 1719, he published a whole collection of psalm paraphrases that are loosely based on, you know, the entire Psalter with a Christological interpretation. So it's a pretty free, Uh, It's not a a translation by any means. But Joy to the World is Isaac Watts' Christological interpretation of Psalm 98. That includes echoes from Psalm 96, which is very similar to Psalm 98, as well as the promise uh, in Genesis 3.15. And so what makes Joy to the World such an unexpected Christmas carol is that Psalm 98 seems to be more about Christ's second coming in glory than about His first coming in humility. It's always hard to... You can't just completely separate out Old Testament passages and say, oh, this is clearly only about Christ's first coming, and this one's only clearly about Christ's second coming. But, nonetheless it does seem that Psalm 98 is describing the worldwide rejoicing at the coming of Jesus the Judge, which seems to allude more to His second coming than than His first. But somehow, in the course of history, Watts' paraphrase of Psalm 98, without any reference to babies, mangers, angels, shepherds, snow anything that makes up your favorite Christmas carol, without any of those references, Joy to the World has become the most popular Christmas carol of our era. It might be because the tune comes from Handel's Messiah, but that's a whole other story. So while Joy to the World may be somewhat odd as a Christmas carol, it's actually a really good Advent hymn. So here on Christmas Eve... We get to look at Psalm 98 and consider uh, consider uh, the implications of this psalm for Christmas and for Advent. Because Advent is a time when we remember God's promises through the prophets to send the Messiah to redeem the world. And it's also a time for all Christians to look ahead to the promised return Of Christ in glory. And Psalm 98 is loaded with these kinds, this kind of expectation. Psalm 98 is all about the coming of the Lord in glory as King of the nations and Judge of all the earth. Psalm 98 looks ahead to the day when God will reveal his righteousness. In the sight of all peoples. And when God comes to reveal his righteousness, he comes to set things right. Psalm 98 anticipates the day when all nations and even all of creation will acclaim God as king and rejoice under his just rule. And to highlight this theme, this universal rejoicing at the coming of the king, the psalmist uses seven imperatives, a fullness of commands to call the whole world to praise. And the first of those seven imperatives is found in verse 1. Sing to Yahweh a new song. Now, all the psalms are meant to be sung. After all, the Hebrew word for psalm means a song set to a musical accompaniment. But there are also many psalms that exhort God's people to sing as part of the song, And this is one of them. But the command here is not just to sing. The command is to sing a new song. Now, a new song of of course, can simply be a new way of saying the same thing. But when Scripture speaks of singing a new song, it's implied that a new song is called for. A new song is required because the Lord has acted in a new way to bring about salvation. Singing, of course, is glorified speech. And singing a new song is a creative act. Singing a new song is creating something that had not previously existed. As Rich pointed out several weeks ago, there's good reason that uh, writers like Tolkien and Lewis portray the world being sung into existence. Because as Job tells us, the angels were singing when God created the world. We have to assume that they learned to sing from God Himself. Singing accompanies creation. Singing, in fact, we could say when God sings, it brings about creation, which means that singing is also necessarily connected with salvation. But because what else is salvation but God's way of bringing about a new creation? So Psalm 98 then calls for a new song to celebrate a new creation, a new act of salvation that God has accomplished. Singing often brings about salvation, and God, when God acts to save, singing always follows salvation. God's great acts of deliverance His wonderful deeds are always memorialized in song. The Old Testament is filled with examples uh, of songs of salvation. Think Think of songs like the song of Moses in Exodus 15. When Miriam led the people singing this triumphant victory song after God had had uh, drowned the pharaoh's army in the red sea and delivered his people through on dry land that was a, a new creation that was an act of salvation and the book of revelation tells us shows us that that same song that song of Moses is still being sung in heaven it reverberates throughout eternity to memorialize the mighty acts of god Deborah and Barak, the judges who lead God's people to defeat the armies of Sisera, sing a song in Judges 5, a song of salvation. Hannah uh, in 1 Samuel, when God grants her requests to give her a child, she sings a song of praise and thanksgiving that later becomes the basis for Mary's song, the Magnificat. And Isaiah is filled with with servant songs, songs about the coming Messiah, God's servant. And of course, there are many, many other songs of praise for God's acts of salvation that are collected together in the book of Psalms, which becomes God's people's inspired hymnal. So in light of this background... Is it any wonder that the birth narratives of Jesus resound with songs of praise? This is, as as Rich has been preaching on this Advent season, this is Luke's salvation soundtrack. You have Mary's Magnificat, Zechariah's Benedictus, the angelic Gloria, and Simeon's Nunc all of this songing, all of this singing, all of these songs of salvation are celebrating the new creation that God is bringing about in the incarnation of His Son. Because after all, the name Jesus means salvation. Jesus is the salvation that had been promised from the very beginning. And in many ways, the Incarnation is the ultimate wonderful thing that God has done. But the wonder of the Incarnation, in many respects, is found in how inconspicuous of a wonderful deed it is. We often think of God's miraculous works and His wonderful deeds as these incredible... Um, You know, catastrophic things of, you know, making, you know, cities fall down and, and, you know, great storms and plagues on armies and angelic hosts going out and wiping out the enemy. But the incarnation, the most wonderful act of God, his, one of his, his greatest acts of salvation is so wonderful because of how inconspicuous it is. It's astounding that God would come to earth to save us. But it's even more incredible that God would come to earth as a man, as a baby. And we would do well to remember that God very often works His greatest wonders in the most ordinary and hidden ways. That doesn't make those wonders any less wonderful. In fact, it's usually the hiddenness of God's work that makes it all that much more wonderful. God saves men and women through the preaching of his word. God adopts us into his family and gives us his spirit by washing us in the waters of baptism. God gives to us the benefits of the body and blood of Christ through ordinary bread and wine. He works His will in the world through the prayers of His people and through ordinary Christians like you and me fulfilling our vocations in the world. The incarnation of Christ, this most inconspicuous and ordinary of events in many ways, infuses all of life every boring detail with significance and with glory. So there are many ordinary and hidden ways that God works in the world. But Psalm 98 describes something spectacular. Something that gets the attention of the whole world. Something that causes all of creation to burst forth in worship. What could possibly be so exciting? What in the world could elicit such praise? And verse 9 tells us plainly, God is coming, and He's coming to judge the earth. Does that strike you maybe as a bit counterintuitive? Psalm 98 teaches us to see God's judgment, God's coming in judgment As good news. And here's why. The announcement of God coming in judgment is only good news because of what is said in the first part of the psalm. The God who comes in judgment is the God who works salvation, the God who comes in judgment is the God who sets things right. The God who comes in judgment is the one who remembers His covenant love and His faithfulness to His people. The God who is coming in judgment is the God who supplies what He requires. Jesus came first as Savior and only after coming as Savior will He come again as Judge. And so the final coming of God in judgment is good news for all who have embraced Jesus in His first coming in humility. The biblical idea of salvation always, almost always includes two aspects, two sides of the coin, so to speak. When God saves, He rescues His people by defeating His enemies. The two often go hand in hand. So salvation for God's people almost always comes as a result of God's victory over His enemies. And so this is one reason that the psalmist emphasizes the fact that all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. The fact that God has displayed His salvation in the sight of all people is a it's it's a comfort to God's people it's a call to faith it's a call to repentance it's a warning in many ways to show that salvation belongs to the Lord alone there is no refuge from the Lord there is only refuge in the Lord and so God's mighty acts of salvation are a great comfort to us And God's coming in judgment is good news for His people. I've used this quote before, uh, but I will use it again uh, because I think it captures so well this idea of God's coming in judgment as good news. One theologian put it this way. He said, We need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, God's coming judgment is a good thing. Something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field, to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. And so the final coming of the Lord at the, at the last day will be the culmination of God's saving work. It will be the, the completion of God's salvation, not the failure of it, The the final coming of the Lord will be the ultimate judgment day. But we get a foretaste of this judgment day every Sunday. Because every Sunday, the Lord comes among us to renew covenant with us. Every Sunday, God comes among us to inspect us and to cleanse us. Every Lord's day is judgment day with a lowercase uh, j. Every Sunday when we gather, we present before the Lord the fruit of our labors, our tithes, and our offerings, and our very lives. And every Sunday the Lord inspects us. He consecrates us as living sacrifices by the sword of the Spirit. Every Lord's Day, we commune with the Lord at the table in anticipation of the great marriage supper of the Lamb that we will enjoy in its fullness when the Bridegroom returns. Every Lord's Day is a foretaste of that great day of the Lord when Jesus will return in glory to judge all the earth. And so this good news is not just for God's people. This is good news for the whole of creation. Isaac Watts captures this beautifully in the third verse of Joy to the World. He says, "...no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found." This is post-millennialism in a nutshell right here. And Watts gets this idea straight from passages like Psalm 98. The last three verses of Psalm 98 say, Let the sea roar and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the mountains sing joyfully together in the presence of Yahweh, for He is the One coming to judge the earth. These verses describe the whole of creation praising its Creator. How the whole of of the created order will be redeemed from the curse of sin and death. And I think also implicit in this description of the seas and the rivers and the mountains rejoicing before the Lord, I think this is also including the people who live upon the seas, the people who live in the mountains, the people who live along the rivers, These are all these peoples and the world itself will be rejoicing at the coming of the Lord. Psalm 98 shows us that God's plan of redemption encompasses the whole world. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found just how far is the curse found? The curse of sin and death is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's all around us. It pervades every aspect of human life. All creation has been marred by sin and subjected to futility. And God's people... You and I and our brothers and sisters around the world are not insulated from the effects of the fall. We know the consequences of the curse and we grieve the devastating fallout of the fall. Even in our own congregation, we see and feel these effects very, very closely. Infertility and barrenness ectopic pregnancies, miscarriages, newborns with heart defects, cancer, death, unemployment, divorce, loved ones who are ensnared by sin and addiction. God's people here in this place and around the world feel the weight of the curse. We see hatred, oppression, injustice and tyranny in the world around us. The church is fractured and impotent often because of her own faithlessness. And so we grieve the curse of sin and the whole creation, Paul tells us, groans with us because it too has been subjected to futility. But Paul reminds us that the Spirit groans with us. The Spirit prays for us Even when we don't have the words, the Spirit prays for us according to the will of God. But all of these groans are not the groans of despair, but the groans of hope. These are not groans of death, but groans of life. These are groans of anticipation, groans of confident expectation. Because the Spirit of God is present and active in the world. Because the Spirit of God is active in our lives, hovering over the chaos, hovering over the wreckage of the world and the havoc that sin has wrought to bring about a new and glorious creation. Psalm 98 gives us a glimpse into the joy that awaits us when God reveals His righteousness in the sight of all the nations. Yes, the curse has penetrated to every nook and cranny of the world, but the curse of death that affects every area of life is slowly but surely being undone. And the blessings of God are flowing out to redeem and renew all things. The first coming of Jesus marks the end of the night in the beginning of a new day. The bitter cold of winter has come to an end. The frozen world is thawing out. And the signs of springtime are all around us. Even in the midst of a broken and fallen world. Where death reigned supreme, Jesus is bringing His life. Where sin held sway, Jesus is bringing freedom and healing. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. And if you don't believe me, take Jesus' word for it. He spells this out in two short parables in Luke chapter 13 where he describes the growth and the extent of the kingdom of God. And we can miss it if we don't. If you blink, you miss it. They're just that short. Jesus' first parable is of a tiny mustard seed. The tiniest One of the tiniest seeds. This tiny little mustard seed. And he describes the kingdom of God like that tiny little mustard seed that's planted and grows into one of the great trees that provides shelter for all the birds of the air to build their nest in. This is a picture drawing on Old Testament symbolism of the kingdom of God becoming greater than any other empire, any other kingdom in all the nations of the world, all the Gentiles coming to find shelter, to find a place to rest in the kingdom of God. This parable describes the extensive growth of God's kingdom. The extent to which God's kingdom will grow in the earth. Jesus has received the nations as His inheritance. The problem is they just don't know it yet. And so that's why the church is commissioned to take the good news of Jesus' kingship to people of every nation, tribe, and language. Somehow we've gotten the idea in many circles of evangelicalism that God is stingy with His grace, And that He only plans on saving a few people here or there. But that's not at all what Jesus has in mind. Jesus doesn't send His church to make a few disciples uh, in every nation. He commissions His church to disciple entire nations. And all of them. In Luke 13, we read uh, Jesus... Says, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many I tell you will seek to enter and will not be able. And we sometimes think that that means that there's only going to be, a, you know, the few, the proud, the Marines, like those who those who make it into the kingdom are just going to be real small, the elite few. But right after that. Jesus laments over the fact that Jerusalem has rejected Him. That the people who heard Him teaching and saw Him in the streets of Jerusalem had rejected Him. And so the point there is that not many Israelites would trust in Jesus as Messiah. But later He goes on to say that people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the Kingdom of God. It is the, the, uh, the tragedy of Israel's rejection of their Messiah is what in God's inscrutable wisdom opens the door for the Gentiles to come flocking into the kingdom in droves. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. So the first parable of the mustard seed describes the extensive growth of the kingdom. But the, the next parable, the parable of the leaven, describes the intensive growth of God's kingdom. If you've ever made bread from a starter or made yeast bread, you know that it doesn't take much. A little goes a long way, right? You can, you can leaven an entire batch of dough with just a little tiny bit uh, of starter or, or yeast. And that's the idea here in this parable, that this little tiny lump of leaven is being worked out through the entire lump of dough. And this, I think, signifies that the blessings of God's kingdom, not only do they flow outward in every direction, but they also transform every aspect of human life. Just as the curse of sin has tainted every area of life, so the blessings of Christ and the gift of His Spirit restore and renew every area of life. Jesus' death and resurrection makes the curse work in reverse with the result that all things in heaven and on earth, are being reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. And Psalm 98 gives us a glimpse of what it will be like when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea and the whole world joins together. The creation itself joins in unison to praise her Lord Jesus. And king. In a day and age when the church is weak and the culture is in chaos and the ravages of sin are ever before us and all around us, we need Psalm 98 to remind us of the good news that Jesus has come to bring salvation and he will come again to finish what he started. Psalm 98 commands us to sing in hope even when we don't feel like it. Even when we have every reason not to shout for joy. It may seem absurd to call on the nations of the earth to praise the Lord. It may seem absurd to call on North Korea or Iraq or Syria or fill in the blank to praise the Lord or your neighbor down the street to praise the Lord, but Psalm 98 requires us to do it anyway because Psalm 98 reminds us how the story ends. Psalm 98 lifts our gaze beyond our current moment and strengthens us to persevere in hope. And so, as we enter into the Christmas celebration, as we anticipate what a new year will bring for us in 2018, let's recall God's faithfulness to his people through the ages. Recall God's mighty acts of salvation and his wonderful deeds. Meditate on God's salvation and rejoice with singing and sing in confident hope of the great salvation that is yet to come. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are bringing Your blessings to flow as far as the curse is found. We thank You for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank You for His uh, for His coming as a baby, we thank You for His death and His resurrection. We thank You that He is now ruling and reigning over all things, and that by Your Spirit, You are bringing to completion the great salvation that, that You started in, in Christ at His incarnation. Lord, fill us with faith to believe these promises. Fill us with hope to persevere through through life in a fallen world. Lord, we pray that You would find us ready at Your coming, that You would complete Your work in us by Your Spirit, that we may stand before You unashamed. We pray this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.